hppodcraft.com. Are you ready? Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this week we are tackling Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Who's that written by? That's written by HP Lovecraft in cooperation with E. Hoffman Price. Well, we'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to, real quick before we dig into the story, thank everybody who contributed yeah. to the ransom for our Call of Cthulhu reading, which came out a couple weeks ago. This recording was done entirely in Los Angeles, so I had nothing to do with it. It was all the magic of Chad Pfeiffer and Andrew Lehman that really pulled this ah, together. Thanks. Well, you know, I'm like, it's a, I'm not the guy with the superpowers. I'm just like the guy who gets the team together. You're like Nick Fury is what you're saying. I'm, exactly. Because right. we got, I, I, I think Heavy Thanks has to go to Andrew Lehman, of course, you know? Oh my God. Just knocked it out of the park. That goes without saying. Andrew is magic. One of our listeners Listeners wrote in, Ross B., he wrote, he said, uh, a completely different take. Instead of depicting the story from detached reason, Andrew Lehman portrays the story as a truthful lament. I thought that was a great description. Oh, yeah. It's you great, it, but it's there. It's in the story. And Andrew yeah. does this great job of just bringing out aspects of the story that I maybe didn't recognize at first. But, it, I mean, it's it's all there. It's so good. It's good stuff. And, of course, we also have to thank Reber Clark. The music was its so perfect and appropriate for the story. Yeah. Been selling the, uh, the CDs of the music he did for At the Mountains of Madness and the score he did for his film Lovecraft Paragraphs. And of course, we used all that in the reading, but he also did a few original tracks for the reading. Yeah. And uh, he's now offering those on his site as well. So we'll link out to that if you want to pick that stuff up. Great to play in the background while you're doing your Arkham Horror games and stuff like that. Exactly. <laughs> it's good soundtrack music. If you wanted to download the readings that we produce, those are now available exclusively at our site. They're still free, but we took them down from the feed just to save bandwidth. Yes. Uh, so you can download them directly from our site. We want to say thanks so much to one of our listeners and, and a friend of the show, Michael Walker. He donated some of his own yes. server space so we can yep. mirror our reading files out there. And that way everybody can get them. And there's Because there were a lot of delays when we put out Cthulhu. Yeah, because it, um, well, it's a huge file. It's about yeah. three times as long as one of our typical shows. So it really kind of killed our bandwidth. We went over again. So that's all fixed. And you can download them from the site. And thanks, Michael. We really appreciate that. Thank you And so of course, much. Michael Mann, who, who's taking care of all this for us, Mike Mann. As always, being the uh, the tremendous assets of the show. Thank you so much, Mike, for, for being there for us. Because Chad and I would be helpless little babies without you. <laughs> also, I want to say that we have a sponsor this week. My good friend Paul McLean, he has produced this amazing product called Lovecraftian Letters. You know those poem kits that you would get that are magnets? They're little yeah. words, and you would put them up on your fridge, and you'd make out you know, your own poem. Well, he's taken a Lovecraftian vocabulary and put one of these scents together. Yeah, it's great. We have it on, we have it on our fridge here. Oh, right you now. have it? Yeah, you have it too. Yeah, he sent it to me. Lovecraftian oh, right. magnetic poetry. It's great. Yes. <laughs> I've got some really weird stuff written up there. I've got uh, good, yeah, I've actually yeah. come out with some stuff that I like. But um, if you want to check them out, go to uh, insmithhouse.com and you can purchase it. It's uh, 19 pounds, which comes out to be about $30. You're like a human calculator. It's super cool. It's really neat. It's one of these things that I was just like, why hasn't anybody thought of this before? It's so yeah. cool. It's and fun. I, yeah, it's great stuff. Go to insmithhouse.com and it's Lovecraftian Letters. You can't miss it and you will love it. I promise you. All right, cool. Well, uh, we're about to dive into the story. Once again, this week we have an outstanding reader, Lance Holt. Oh, Lance. Uh, yeah, Lance is yeah. back. Uh, he's done a few of the other Randolph Carter stuff. He was a Dream Quest and he also did the Silver Key, right? Yep. So yeah, if you want to check out any of Lance's stuff, he's done a lot of movie voices and things like that. He's at lancejholt.com. He's also going to be on a... There's 3D television. It's called Brothers Grimm Scary Tales. Mm -hmm. And he's in this episode called The Juniper Tree. He plays the father. And that's, you can see him as a guy because he's actually not just a voice. He's a physical human being. Oh, I, I got to watch that. 
In a vast room hung with strangely figured aras and carpeted with Bukhara rugs of impressive age and workmanship, four men were sitting around a document-strewn table. From the far corners where odd tripods of wrought iron were now and then replenished by an incredibly aged negro in somber livery came the hypnotic fumes of olivinum, while in a deep niche on one side there ticked a curious coffin-shaped clock whose dial bore baffling hieroglyphs and whose four hands did not move in consonance with any time system known on this planet. It was a singular and disturbing room, but well fitted to the business now at hand. For here, in the New Orleans home of this continent's greatest mystic, mathematician, and orientalist, there was being settled at last the estate of a scarcely less great mystic, scholar, author, and dreamer who had vanished from the face of the earth four years before. All right, so we're setting the scene. This is the return of Randolph Carter, or at least a sequel to The Silver Key. This is a direct sequel. So it is a direct sequel. It's a few years afterwards, mm -hmm. and these um, these guys, these are friends of Randolph Carter's, are sitting around the table trying to figure out what to do. Now, they go kind of do a recap of what happened in, in the original story. You know, this being a sequel, doesn't that play into the, the kind of origin of the story within the, the connection with E. Hoffman Price? Yeah. It's sort of one of those things where he really liked The Silver Key yeah. and then pitched it to Lovecraft, like maybe we should do a sequel. Isn't it something like that? He actually wrote a whole thing, and it was called The Lord of Illusion, and he sent it to Lovecraft and said, hey, I wrote this. What do you think? Let's collaborate on it. Because he was trying to get Lovecraft to do something, and mm -hmm. Lovecraft just wasn't interested, so he just took the initiative and wrote a whole story. Then Lovecraft supposedly totally rewrote the whole thing. <laughs> oh, but, and that's what this is? And that's what this is, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great way to get him involved. I really want to work on something with Lovecraft. He doesn't want me to, so I'm going to write a crappy story just to make him angry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he was trying to make him angry. He was trying to... Um, well, it's strange how they met. Price was friends with Farnsworth Wright, who is the editor of Weird Tales magazine. Mm -hmm. And Price had read Lovecraft's submission of Strange High House in the Mist, and sort of panned it so it didn't get published by Weird Tales, and that was that, until years later. In 1932, Lovecraft went down to New Orleans just to check it out. Robert E. Howard knew that Price lived down in New Orleans and telegraphed Price and said, hey, my buddy Lovecraft is down there, you guys should meet. And he's like, well, yeah, I kind of like some of Lovecraft's work. So anyway, they got together and they became friends. Mm -hmm. There's this story, which probably isn't true, but it's a good story anyway, uh -huh. that supposedly Price took Lovecraft down to this brothel in New Orleans and introduced them to a bunch of these prostitutes working at the brothel, and they all were fans of H.P. Lovecraft's work. <laughs> like, they read weird tales in a brothel, supposedly. Well, I, I really hope that's true. Yeah. Why do you think it's not true? Well, supposedly that same story has been told um, featuring the author Seabury Quinn as well. Oh, oh like so it's in, an urban legend? Where yeah, it might be an urban authors. legend. Yeah, exactly. We've been with this character, Randolph Carter, through many stories. And, yes. And at least one of those is referenced here as well, the statement of Randolph Carter and mm -hmm. Harley Warren and that whole incident. Yeah. They just kind of hint at in that second paragraph. And then they get into the, the Silver Key, but there's no real reference to... The Dream Quest. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath here, probably because since that wasn't, that wasn't published. Well, there's a bunch of Randolph Carter stories. There's Statement of Randolph Carter, A Nameable, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, The Silver Key, Through the Gates mm -hmm. of the Silver Key. And yeah. then again, out of Aeons. Yeah, Randolph is going to show up again later. Yeah, he's right? going to show up again. So this isn't the last time we get uh, Randolph Carter action. They mention all of those things here in the beginning and talk about his boyhood home and how his car was found. And there, there was no key in the car, but there was a sheet of paper mm -hmm. that had some crazy hieroglyphics on it that nobody knew what it was and could never understand it. And right. It's a bit of a mystery. They also mention his 
ancestor uh, Edmund Carter. Yes. Because he, and this is something, and maybe it's been mentioned before, but I didn't know this, that Arkham itself was settled by people fleeing the witchcraft trials in 1692. Yeah, they did mention that before. I'm trying to remember. Did I they? think it was in Dreams of the Witch House they talked about it. I mean, that the it was actually founded on that incident. Yeah, well, because those there were all the witches that fled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moved to Arkham, so that's the new the new Salem. That's amazing. It's it's like a witchy reflection of America. They Their religion was being persecuted, so they fled to Arkham and made their own yeah. creepy world there. <laughs> Okay, so we're getting caught up on this stuff, and why? Okay, so these guys have gotten together because they're trying to settle his estate. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a few guys there. Ward Phillips, who's a cousin of right. Carter. Um, mm -hmm. The other is a French guy, Etienne Laurent de Margerini. <laughs> it's Etienne Laurent de Marigny. Marigny's a neighborhood in, in New Orleans, actually, right by the French. Ah, border. so that's where that name comes from, yeah. obviously. Etienne, I think, is French for Stephen. And I know the band St. Etienne, which I Yeah, St. Etienne enjoy. is a great band. And then there's the lawyer. Yeah, Ernest B. Aspinwall of Chicago. And Aspinwall, I mean, that's a great name because it really sounds like who this character is. He's a yeah. real crusty skeptic who's there, basically. I mean, he's kind of the villain of the piece because... Ward Phillips, uh, who's an old man that believes in all of Carter's mystical stuff that he's always rambling on yeah. about. He's had his own dream life and visions of all this kind of stuff that Carter's into. Yeah. He doesn't want to settle the estate. or he Ernest B. Asimov just wants to sell all this junk off, get rid of it. And the the fourth person is is this um, Indian guy in a turban with a beard and everything named uh, <laughs> Chandraputra. Swami Chandraputra. <laughs> Swami Chandraputra, who uh, is supposedly a, a skilled mystic from the Far East. Right. Pretty much all these guys, except for... Aspinwall are supernaturally inclined in scholars in, the, in that kind of world. Stuff. This is Etienne's living. This is his place that we're in, in New Orleans. Right. Yeah, he's got that crazy clock that, that has the weird interdimensional rhythms on it and stuff. You know, when I read Swami Shandaputra, for some reason, I just kept thinking of the character from Bozo, the clown. <laughs> Wizzo? Yeah, Wizzo. Wizzo. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know why. Because it's got such a whack. Like, I, I would have loved the name Swandi, Swami Shandaputra when I was a little kid. It's just got such a fun rhythmic swami chandraputra but chandraputra despite being from uh, benares who so he should be an indian but he's got perfect anglo-saxon english yeah but he talks he's got his voice is a little weird it's a little metallic-y sounding like he's got some sort of throat damage which is a yeah. big tip off right off the bat and he also has that indian practice of wearing large white mittens wait a minute that's not an indian <laughs> practice dude nobody <laughs> finds that odd it's commented on yeah I forgot about it till I was doing a secondary reading, and then I, I thought, that's the craziest thing in this story, that all those guys are sitting in a room, and there's a guy wearing huge white mittens, and nobody's saying anything about it. Yeah. That's the most unbelievable thing in the story. <laughs> now, in this part where they, initially when they're talking, they, they sort of bring up, like you said, Harley Warren, and how there were mm -hmm. symbols that matched keystones of that grave where, down in the catacombs, where, where Harley Warren went with mm -hmm. some of the stuff that was written on this on this paper, there was a keystone found in Arabia that also had these hieroglyphics on mm -hmm. them. So there's some kind of big connection, but nobody knows what they mean or where they're from. At this point, Chandraputra says, you know what? I know where Carter is. He's alive. Yeah, he just breaks out with that. He goes, by yeah. the way, guys, before we settle anything, I just got to let you know that, and it's going to be hard to believe, but I know exactly what happened to him. And now, well, In fact, he said something, he's, he phrases it in a really odd way. He says, I have really learned pretty much what happened to Carter. Just sounds odd that he would say <laughs> Pretty much. I know pretty much what happened. Pretty much. Pretty much. The hills behind Arkham are full of strange magic. Something perhaps which the old wizard, Edmund Carter, called down from the stars and up from the crypts of Nether Earth when he fled there from Salem in 1692. 
As soon as Randolph Carter was back among them, he knew that he was close to one of the gates which a few audacious, abhorred, and alien-souled men have blasted through titan walls betwixt the world and the outside absolute. Here he felt, and on this day of the year, he could carry out with success the message he had deciphered months before from the arabesques of that tarnished and incredibly ancient silver key. He knew now how it must be rotated, how it must be held up to the setting sun, and what syllables of ceremony must be intoned into the void at the ninth and last turning. In a spot as close to a dark polarity and induced gate as this, it could not fail in its primary function. Certainly, he would rest that night in the lost boyhood for which he had never ceased to mourn. It's a recap of the Silver Key, exactly. really, right? Yeah. He goes yeah. out, he, he drives out to Arkham, he gets out of his car, he goes to the snake den, he goes into the cave, he turns into an eight-year-old kid, eight kid again, he comes out, his family's there, he, he travels through time, and basically he's himself. Now, the next day he gets up and he goes back out to the snake den with the key as a little kid, uh-huh. hoping to unlock a gate somewhere, right? Yeah. So chapter two is just a quick recap of the Silver Key. Yeah. And that's just Shana Putra saying, hey, all right, here's what happened. Because these guys don't know that. No, no, they don't know anything about that. They don't know that any of this time yeah. travel stuff went on. They just know he disappeared. And of course, um, Aspenwall just thinks this is all stupid and ridiculous. Everybody says, shut up. We want to hear this because the other guys <laughs> believe it. You know, they're they're of, of the mind. They know about all this stuff. And they bring up, of course, the narcotic fragments and the Necronomicon and all of these mm. things about time and space. And it, it all makes sense to them that this that these things are possible. Yeah. One of the things that it mentions in the Necronomicon is that there is this there will be a guide that once you go past once through, you go through this gate, there will be a guide that will guide you into the ultimate understanding, ultimate universe beyond time and space, like real crazy trippy stuff. So Chandra Putra says, Carter used the key and went in search of this guide and and what laid beyond. Mm -hmm. And it takes him to this place where there are these hexagonal columns. And atop the hexagonal columns are all these robed figures, but they don't have any, the robes don't have any faces in them. So it's just cloth. They're like wearing sacks over their heads. Right. And one of these guys, Umar Atwil, reveals himself to be the guide, the guide. He's sort of the guardian of a bigger gate. Yes. All these people are in around and it's like the Jedi Council is there or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's this <laughs> kind of circle of, of, of monsters or something but that you can't really see. And there's a thing here where they talk about how Carter has no fear. And that's really the reason that he can do these he things. He can do these things. Yeah. Because if, if you have fear, you're not going to be able to handle what comes next. That's really interesting and it's not something that has been addressed i think no in other stories to me i I felt like it's kind of a metaphor for acceptance of our place in the universe you know carter carter's mind isn't going to be blown by anything he discovers he's already accepted that we're insignificant and there's all these things that yeah that we don't know about and and we're out of control that's how i took it yeah i think so i mean he's he's ready for it he doesn't know everything yet right they believe and he believes i mean the, the guide says to him look this is the the ultimate gate once you go through this there's nothing else this is going to give you this crazy view of the universe and most people wouldn't be able to deal with it. And once you go, you can't ever come back. Like mm-hmm. you, you're, it's going to open up such terrifying vistas that you're not going to be able to un- unknow it. Do <laughs> you right. have to decide whether you're going to do it? And Carter's like, yeah, of course I'm going to do it, man. No fear. It gets really psychedelic even more mm-hmm. so. And there's all this crazy buzzing sound and there's the unplumbed vastness of utter and absolute outsidedness with which the earth had nothing to do with. There's all kinds of crazy ticking in there, like a, a rhythm yeah. that is kind of playing. And he actually 
Shantaputra breaks in the story to say, Mr. Demirini, you'd know what this rhythm is because you've got that clock up there. And I wonder if you know that that clock has other properties. But anyway, let me get on with my story. <laughs> kind of setting up something that's going to happen. One later. of the things, too, that he says in here, how there was this background noise to the universe that he never heard before. But once he went outside of the universe and it was gone. He goes through the first gate. He, he sees the guide. The guide takes him through the next gate. And there's kind of a journey there. And that's what this is, right? Yeah. They're, mm -hmm. they're going toward that final gate. And there's this crazy. At one point, it's, it's Carter realized how horrible it is for things to be totally silent. Yeah. Utter, you know, and that means silent. It's just all sound, all vibrations in the universe are suddenly gone. Yeah. And, and it's this ultimate terror. It's very cool. There's a lot of really cool things in the story. It's, it's, but there's so much that that's thrown at you. Mm. It's a little hard to digest. And I've been, you know, going over these notes and I'm just like, we could conceivably talk about this story for episodes and episodes, but I think that, that there's not really a point. I think this is one of those that you just have to read. You do. I, I, if you are into sensory overload descriptions and you like this, when Lovecraft does this kind of stuff, you'll love this story. Yeah. It would be kind of difficult for us to convey a lot of what's going on in this show. So yeah. we'll probably, we'll, we'll stick to the facts and we'll kind of skip through things here, but right. know exactly. that there are huge descriptions of lights and sound and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. When they go through the gate, something happens to Carter that's even more horrifying than the ultimate silence he suddenly sort of splits into or he doesn't split but he suddenly realizes that he is more than one person and this is really the most horrifying thing because he's losing his sense of self his sense of personality individuality yeah and it's not that he split off into a bunch of different people it's just that he realizes he's an aspect of a larger whole they introduce it here when they say there were carters in settings belonging to every known and suspected age of earth's history and to remoter ages of earthly entity transcending knowledge, suspicion, and credibility. Carters of forms both human and non-human, vertebrate and invertebrate, conscious and mindless, animal and vegetable, and more, there were Carters having nothing in common with earthly life, but moving outrageously amidst backgrounds of other planets and systems and galaxies and cosmic continua, Spores of eternal life drifting from world to world, universe to universe, yet all equally himself. Some of the glimpses recalled dreams, both faint and vivid, single and persistent, which he had had through the long years since he first began to dream, and a few possessed a haunting, fascinating, and almost horrible familiarity which no earthly logic could explain amazing wow this is my favorite part of the story the old carter the old wizard from the six, 1600s is carter it's not his ancestor i mean it is his ancestor but it's also him yeah there's like a primate randolph carter and then there's amoeba randolph carter and there, there's spores and there's aliens like in the future throughout time and space like he exists not just in one space but he exists throughout space in these different forms and time. and It's more than just that there's so many aspects of us. It's that they say all that was and is and is to be exists simultaneously. Yeah. And everything is happening all at once. Each archetype, you know, there's just several archetypes in the world and we're all aspects of these archetypes. Think of it like a cone that if you were to slice in different areas would produce different shapes. The cone, you could be, you could see a circle, an ellipse, a parabola, right? It's saying you could see all these shapes. And that's kind of how we are. We're all just cut out of one archetype. Yeah. Because Carter is more than just 
himself in the past and future. He's also creatures of other dimensions and that kind of stuff. Now, this is where we're kind of getting into theosophy. Mm -hmm. Price kind of turned Lovecraft onto theosophy as well, which is sort of this, this idea, which is kind of a new age mysticism. It sort of borrows from Hindu religion as well. But it's it is its own thing, theosophy. Um, you you have to read more about it. But right. Lovecraft had read some of it, and this is definitely kind of his take on that. And of course, he puts his own spin on it. But right. in theosophy, there's different races that have existed, kind of ebbed and flowed. And before humans, there was some other thing, and before that other thing, there was this other thing. Right. One of the bits of theosophy is um, that we're all descended from. Uh, this one race called the Aryans. Well, Theosophy is mentioned in other. I mean, I remember it is. in Call yeah, of Cthulhu, yeah. he mentions it. Uh, it's something that has shown up in his work. But it's not. It's not inherently evil. Like, you know, just because Hitler liked some aspects of it and, and took it to this really crazy place, there's nowhere in Theosophy doesn't say you should start killing everything. And right. And, and I believe in Theosophy, everybody's of the Aryan, all humans, not mm. not just blonde people. So Carter's off floating in this void, but his guide left him. This isn't the guide that's telling him all of this. The guide took him through the final gate, and the thing that is describing the shadow and illusion of reality to him and telling him how things really work is this kind of, this presence. In the face of that awful wonder, the quasi-Carter forgot the horror of destroyed individuality. It was an all-in-one and one-in-all of limitless being and self, not merely a thing of one space-time continuum, but allied to the ultimate animating essence of existence's whole unbounded sweep, the last utter sweep which has no confines and which outreaches fancy and mathematics alike. It was perhaps that which certain secret cults of Earth have whispered of as Yogg-Sothoth, and which has been a deity under other names, that which the crustaceans of Yogath worship as the beyond one, and which the vaporous brains of the spiral nebula know by an untranslatable sign. Yet in a flash, the Carter facet realized how slight and fractional these conceptions are. He's out there basically having a conversation with Yogg-Sothoth, and this thing is the supreme archetype. So there's many archetypes that we are all aspects of. Right, and we learned something about Carter's connection to this aspect. He is part of Yogg-Sothoth's archetype. Yeah. Kind of conversing with himself in a way. He's just a different aspect of Yogg-Sothoth, which is crazy. So that means he is Yogg-Sothoth, which is mind-blowing. And that means that Randolph Carter knocked up Lavinia Whaley. Right, so Randolph Carter is Wilbur Watley's father. Yeah. Well, actually, they're the same person, because wouldn't Wilbur Waitley also be in the archetype with Carter? Yeah, I guess. Because all wizards, all great thinkers, all great artists are facets of Yogg-Sothoth. On one level, all of Lovecraft's characters, in a literary sense, fit an archetype. They're all the same sort of character. And now he's really saying it in the literature that they are actually all <laughs> the same archetype, the same person. It's a it's a moment of kind of stupendous awareness. You know what yeah. I mean? It's a really cool thing. Yeah. I was I, This is the one greatest thing in the story that I took out that I've, that I've been turning over since I read it. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, I don't think it gets enough credit at all. There's a lot of discussion of philosophical things in yeah. this section. But what the conclusion is, is that once Carter realizes that he is everything he's ever been, that, that there are all these different aspects of him, what he wants to do is travel 
back to this one aspect of himself that he's dreamed about and experience it. Yeah, no, that's the thing. He Now that he knows he is everything, he can move through time and space. He can go to different areas of the cone, so to speak. Yeah, exactly, and just live in it and be part of it. So then that's when things really, if with that idea, it gets trippy because then he literally is all of those things because at some point in his existence, he's going to go back in time or go forward in time and live in those people, in those places. Man, it's just crazy. Yeah, but now Carter wants something. He's like, well, if that's the case, what I would love to do is I have this I have this dream about this alien world where there's these weird, clawed-snouted folks. Yeah, they're like big bugs, bug people. And I feel like I lived there one time, and I would really like to go Yeah, and, and experience it. And the presence says, all right, you can do that, but I'm warning you, if you go, if I send you there, if I grant this request... You better have all your magical stuff in order if you want to come back. Yeah. And, and he kind of goes, yeah, yeah, I got it. I know what I'm doing. I got the silver like, key. I'm fine. It's the precedent for Army of Darkness. <laughs> it I, is. I, I've never seen this in Lovecraft before. But Randall Carter's so cocky. He says, yeah, whatever. I know the words. I got it. It's fine. Just go ahead and send me. Yeah. It's, this is his uh, his tragic flaw. I mean, he's he, sh- he, he doesn't have that thing that they found in the car, right? There's like a... a the parchment. The parchment that's got special symbols and stuff on he doesn't have that he's just got the key it's just like the greatest american hero he doesn't have the instructions for the suit <laughs> that's exactly right yuxatha says all right great i'm gonna send you your request is granted and he he gets shot into the past with just the silver key and without the instruction manual we go back to the guys sitting in the room everybody's pretty impressed well not everybody aspenwall yeah. doesn't think you know he's not believing it at all he thinks it's ridiculous nothing wrong with that by the way of course. because if i was sitting there and some weirdly expressionless shandaputra was telling me this i don't think i'd be on board with it of course not well we find out who this consciousness is that he wants to go back to it's this wizard zakakuba from the planet yadis <laughs> These names are, are are kind of unpronounceable. He's a wizard monster. He's a wizard monster, and he gets inside of this wizard monster. Now, the, these the people of yeah, or the creatures of Yadith are fighting with bulls. Mm-hmm. Those are those big worms. The that big we heard worm things. The yeah, quest. they were in yeah. dream quests and stuff like that. Carter is able to get inside of his body, and it's a battle because Zakakuba is fighting for control. They don't merge and become one consciousness. They are two separate entities. Yeah, it's it's tough because he goes into the wizard and then he, of course, he just thinks he's the wizard. It seems like everything that's come before was a dream that this wizard monster had. Right. Because now he's inhabiting that consciousness. So it's very difficult for him to think, to have the point of view as Carter. And I think, doesn't he, I mean, he goes through life. Basically, he lives this thing's life. Yeah. For very large periods of time because these creatures don't have mortal lifespans. They live for... No probably thousands maybe even millions of years yeah they, they so call it they call it cycles solar cycles so you don't really know how long their years are or what they are but for for a long time but when he's got his randolph carter personality ascendant within the being he's able to think i gotta get i, I have to formulate some strategy to get out of here yeah he realizes he that he doesn't have that parchment and he's trapped so he's like i gotta come up with some kind of plan yeah because the key's not working these aliens work on a completely different rule system than human mm-hmm. beings do he didn't anticipate that, so he doesn't know how to use the silver key because he only knows the silver key with being a human. Right. And now he's like, oh, no, this is a whole different ball of wax. So he has to do all this research. But every time he's fighting with that consciousness of the bug guy, because the bug guy remember, starts to think of all this Randolph Carter stuff, and it makes him go, uh, that's crazy. I'm, I'm being crazy. And he tries to forget it. So Randolph has to kind of keep learning stuff. But eventually he finds this drug that suppresses the bug guy's personality, and he's able to do his research and figure out a way to get back home yeah he's he's dropping acid 
<laughs> well, they don't say that specifically, but yeah, sure, why not? So when the snouted insect wizard monster is tripping balls and remembers that he's Randolph Carter, he comes up with this wild plan of escape, which is that he has to kind of make some calculations so that his body can voyage through this light wave envelope. Yeah. And kind of reemerge on the earth in the time of, of Carter. That's his right. plan. He's basically yeah. going to angle everything so that he go he travels in time and shows up there and then once he's there he can go find the instruction manual yeah. that he left in the car mm-hmm. and and with that and the key he can resume his life as Randolph Carter. Yeah, but here's the big problem. He he's going to still be in this insect body. Right. But he can't mentally travel and go inside the body. He physically is going to be inside this insect body and so mm-hmm. he's got he I mean they talk about a lot of things where he has to deal with the germs that are going to be on earth so he has to prepare himself to be able to handle uh, disease from earth because it would instantly kill him and also bacteria and things that might come from other um, from where he is he doesn't want to bring it to earth so he's got to deal with all those things I mean it gets pretty sci-fi at this point and it's fun though yeah it's really neat he does that he's able to figure out a a way to do it it takes a long long time hundreds if not Mm -hmm. thousands of years and he flies to Earth. He talks about flying past the planets and about flying mm-hmm. past Yugoth and, and all that jazz. And he lands his ship over by the snake den. <laughs> and this is the the plan where things... He gets a waxen mask of a person. Oh, he brings a bunch of gold with him, too, because he knows he's going to need gold to get money. Sure. And you can use uh, that at the general store. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, he goes to the bank and, and gets the gold uh, turned into to money. He shows up on Earth again, and he's, he's saying, you know, remember, I lived eons as this other creature here i am back in 1930 because he skips a couple of years he doesn't get it quite right yeah uh, he wants to go to 1928 but he, he winds up in 1930 he has to walk to Ar- it's so funny he's in this crazy snouted clawed insect body and he walks over to arkham gets his money changed at a bank <laughs> he rents a crappy apartment in a crappy part of boston and you know he's got to keep taking those drugs yeah because if the wizard monster kind of wakes up it's going to be scared to death. And it's going to freak out. And it's not going to know what to do. And it's not going to be yeah. coy and be able to hide and wear the mask and everything. It'll, it's, it's a problem. So Shanda Prutra says to these guys, all right, so that's that's the story. And this is what happened to, to Carter. And he's around. And so we, we shouldn't be selling off anything in the estate. We got to keep his stuff intact because he's going to show up. Once he figures out how to get a human his human body back, he needs this parchment. Everybody's like, okay, that's pretty cool. Except Aspenwall, who flips out and just goes, look, you're... You're just trying to rip us off. You're trying to trick us. And then he calls him a nigger, which is really unexpected. And he asks where he got the key because Chandraputra reveals that he has the actual silver key. But it's so weird that Lovecraft is using that word with an antagonist. It really makes him look like an asshole. And Chandraputra, his features are normally placid because obviously he's wearing a mask. But his eyes are blaze. Yeah. When he calls him that, yeah. he's mad about it. Don't please control yourself, Mr. Asmanwall. There's another form of proof that I could give, yeah. he says to him. But I don't want to do that because the effect would be very unpleasant. But he doesn't pay any attention to that because he, at that point, notices the mask. <laughs> hey, by God, I've got it. <laughs> this rascal is in disguise. I don't believe he's an East Indian at all. Well, that face. It isn't a face, but a mask. I guess a story put that into my head, but it's true. It never moves, and that turban and beard hide the edges. This fellow's a common crook. He isn't even a foreigner. I've been watching his language. He's a Yankee of some sort. <laughs> Look at those mittens. He knows his fingerprints could be spotted. Damn you, I'll pull that thing off. 
Stop. The hoarse, oddly alien voice of the Swami held a tone beyond all mere earthly fright. I told you there was another form of proof which I could give if necessary, and I warned you not to provoke me to it. This red-faced old meddler is right. I'm not really an East Indian. This face is a mask, and what it covers is not human. You others have guessed. I felt that minutes ago. It wouldn't be pleasant if I took that mask off. Let it alone, Ernest. I may as well tell you that I am Randolph Carter. All right. There you go. Now we know. I had no idea. (laughs) At this point, Aspenwall kind of goes at him and is going to try and pull the mask off. He turns his back to the other two and they sort of have a tussle. They have a fight. Yeah. Aspenwall gets the mask off. Now, the other guys can't see what is revealed with the mask, but Aspenwall can see it. And he uh-huh. freaks out and has a heart attack and dies. He did whatever when he got that mask off. Whatever he saw was was really scary. At that point, Randolph Carter starts jerking around and and chipping and chirping and making kind of bug noises and freaking out. Then Phillips moves to go to check on him, and the other guy stops him and goes, "No, no, that's not Randolph. That's the that's the wizard. It's a Calva, the wizard of Yadith. Don't, don't mess with him. Yeah, don't mess with him. We don't know what he's capable of. And he just kind of moves around for a few seconds, and he opens up the clock, goes in the clock, and closes the door. Yeah. And then they open up the, the clock, and it's empty. On the floor of the Great White Mitten. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. And you, that's, know, you know what? That was a reverse Scooby-Doo. It was a reverse Scooby-Doo. He pulled the mask of the guy off to reveal a monster. A bit of a replay of Whisper in Darkness. It is. But it's still cool. And the yeah. fact that it's Randolph Carter is, is extra cool. So what was up with that clock? I don't. I think if you know how to use it right, because it's got that rhythm that it's the pendulum is making that rhythm that is kind of the rhythm of the whole cosmos that this thing is a gate of some kind right so if you know because he hints at it earlier he says i wonder if you know about the other properties of that clock all right now i what what i don't know is was it randolph carter who did that or was when the mask got pulled off did the fright shock him into being confused wizard monster i don't know and just goes "Ah, what's going on this naked apes i'm scared and then he runs and escapes i don't know and we don't know he doesn't reveal he's just chandra putra never shows up again he's disappeared and with aspenwald dead randolph carter's estate is in limbo right you know they're like well maybe randolph carter will eventually show up and claim his stuff that's the hope and that's it that's the end of the story yeah they just say in that room that clock is still ticking I don't know if we did a great job of walk. I feel this is a difficult one to describe. It this is story. You know, I, I feel like it, it would have been one of those where we would have to read almost all of the story and then talk about almost every yeah. two or three sentences. You know, and it's just it's it's too much. And I just say read it. It's really cool. It's trippy, but there's some neat concepts that Lovecraft mm-hmm. hasn't really ever touched upon before, and yeah. it's it's really it's neat. I liked it. I love that concept of everything happening simultaneously and everything. There is no time. It's an illusion. Change is an illusion. This is all just different lenses. We're looking through the same simultaneous expression. It's very difficult to articulate, but I, but the ideas are cool. You know, yeah. it's, it's really great. So he's got, I mean, he's just got a really wild character arc. Randolph Carter? Yeah. He has a, I mean, he's got one of the craziest character arcs ever. Starts off as a kind of a wimpy guy who's pushed around and ends up becoming a god. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> it is. You know that uh, uh, 
Jason Thompson, who did the Dream Quest oh, right. comic book. He he just got some funding. He did a Kickstarter thing, and yeah, uh, he's going to republish that with uh, I can't remember what the other stories are. I think it's the White Ship and the Strange High House in the Mist and uh, Celepheus. Yeah, he's putting it all together into a big oversized graphic. He has funding. That'll be pretty cool. I'm glad to see that that got done. Yeah. What else do we have to say about the story? I know that there's some interesting stuff besides the brothel story. There's some other interesting things about E. Hoffman Price. E. Hoffman Price eventually did visit Lovecraft, and there's this one story <laughs> where he comes to Providence to to visit him and they're hanging out with uh, a friend of Lovecraft's and and Price is called Harry Brobst. Yeah, and they bought a six pack of beer and then Lovecraft says, "And what are you going to do with so much of it?" Yeah. <laughs> He's such a teetotaler. They come over with a six pack. It's an unearthly quantity to Lovecraft. Drink all of that? <laughs> e. Hoffman Price wrote a bunch of other things, a bunch of short stories. He's published a ton in Weird Tales. He did a memoir of Lovecraft called The Man Who Was Lovecraft. Oh, cool. This story, Through the Gates of the Silver Key, was written in 1932, but wasn't published until 34 in Weird Tales. So there you go. Gotcha. Well, um, with that, I just want to thank our sponsor, this week's sponsor again, uh, Lovecraftian Letters. For all of your magnet Lovecraftian needs can be met <laughs> by this product. It's super cool, super fun. I've got the wife uh, playing around with it. I re- recommend picking it up. Go to insmithhouse.com. It's great stuff. Speaking of the, the wife, aren't you guys? Uh... I just want to let our listeners know my wife is due um, the 14th of November, which is coming up very soon. And I'm going to have to say there will be a bit of a hiatus, probably a couple weeks of no show once the baby comes. So yeah. I, I don't know when that'll be. If if he's not here next week, then we'll record next week. And if, right. he, if he's here, if he's late and he's not here the following week, then we'll record the following week. We'll be producing shows until you start producing humans. Exactly. Or we'll, it'll just be me singing every week. <laughs> singing what? I don't know. We'll, you'll have to find out. I'll, I'll have to tune in. I'm going to make little goofy songs. That's what we're going to do to fill the time. That would be great. Totally unrelated to Lovecraft. Don't expect that. Oh, all right. <laughs> Just going to be me singing about, you know, blue cotton candy and carnivals. Uh, next week, if we end up releasing next week, it's going to be The Winged Death. And this is another uh, Hazel Heald um, story. Cool. Great title, The Winged Death. Okay, man. Well, a uh, little long this time, so. Eh, it's all right. All right. Well, thanks again to Lance Holt for doing such a great job with the reading. Yeah. Check him out at LanceJHolt.com. And I want to thank Mike Mann for doing all of his great stuff and keeping us afloat. Exactly. And that's all we got. So uh, I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HTPodcast.com.